2: Today is the 11th of November, 2018, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Henry Gunther had every right to feel angry and discontented with his lot in life. Hailing from Baltimore, Maryland, the son of parents who were themselves the children of German immigrants, Gunther had not signed up alongside many of his countrymen when the initial declaration of war was made by the United States on Germany in April 1917. Instead, Henry Gunther was pressed into service by September of that year. Gunther's resentment was not due to his forced arrival in France, though. It was instead due to his demotion from sergeant to private, a punishment which he received after he wrote a letter to a friend urging them to avoid the draft at all costs in which he also set forth some justifiable complaints about the disorganized and miserable conditions, as he put it, on the front lines. The letter was intercepted by the American authorities, and Gunther was penalized accordingly. Nevertheless, the Meuse Argonne offensive, that final Allied push of the war, demanded manpower, and Henry Gunther was assigned to the Chamont de Von in the northwest of France. On a foggy morning, he and his squad moved to examine a German roadblock in a nearby village. Spying the entrenched German soldiers and their machine guns, Gunther stood up, fixed his bayonet, and against the advice of his friend and sergeant, charged the German position. If his friends were aghast, the Germans who Gunther charged towards were first confused and then horrified. They fired a few shots in his direction in a bid to get him to withdraw, but... Henry Gunther did not withdraw. He reached closer and closer to their position, bayonet still fixed, his mission still consuming him. The Germans did not want to shoot this impassioned American soldier, and with good reason. The war, as far as they were concerned, was over. Yet Gunther kept advancing, kept ignoring their calls and warnings, and even fired off a shot of his own. Finally, with some reluctance, the tired old machine gun was directed at Gunther, and with a short burst... The 23-year-old American was killed instantly. The date was the 11th of November, 1918, and the time was 10.59am. Less than 60 seconds after Gunther's body hit the cold ground, the armistice would come into effect across the Western Front. The Great War was over, and Henry Gunther, this much-maligned son of German immigrant parents, was its final casualty. Three days earlier, a British soldier stood watch over a curious scene. Travelling from their headquarters in occupied Belgium, a German delegation had just moved over the border into France for a very special mission, that of ending the Great War. Once across into France, these five German cars rendezvoused with two French vehicles, and this motorcade proceeded through smashed roads and ruined woodlands until, coming up against a morass of mud, it ground to a halt while those in the lead tried to come up with a new route which would bring them to their destination. It seemed almost perverse that nature could have halted such an important mission, but as everyone knew, this mud was only here because, for several years, a vast array of shells had fallen nearby and torn up the landscape. The legacy of so many years of war, it seemed, could not even be escaped when attempting to make peace. At an outpost nearby the halted motorcade was our British soldier who had earlier been informed of the ceasefire in the region and had called to ensure that no shells or bullets were lobbed at these German figures. This British soldier remembered. The roads were a mass of mud. Motor cars of all sorts were ranged by the side of the main street and the German plenipotentiaries were temporarily halted because of a breakdown to a motor lorry in the road in front of them. There were seven cars in all, two of them belonging to the French and five being German. The plenipotentiaries must have halted for nearly half an hour and certain members of the junior staff attached to them got down, while the details of a fresh route to be followed were discussed by them with the French officers by whom they were being escorted. The senior members remained in the cars, invisible in darkness. Those we saw were of the typical officer class, clean-shaven and almost aggressively self-contained. For the most part, they were silent, but occasionally they talked in low tones. On the pavement by the houses, there was a continual movement of French soldiers. No guard was round the cars, for any sort of guard was entirely unnecessary. There was not a single individual among the two or three hundred men present who even moved forward to catch a glimpse of the mission. There was no question as to anyone doubting their identity, for the cars bore on their panels the crest of the Black Eagle. That black eagle, once the awesome symbol of German might and power, now served as little more than an indication of who drove the car. This was not the German empire of four years before. Defiant, proud and loudly ambitious. Instead, these men, stiff and unyielding though they appeared, were in reality under immense strain. It was up to these men to negotiate an armistice with their enemy. The same enemy who they had invaded, whose lands and infrastructure they had spent the last four years grinding into dust, who they had once attempted to bleed white. Given the circumstances, it was perhaps naive for these Germans to imagine that they would have much to say in what happened next. If the shoe had been on the other foot indeed, could the French have expected any mercy? These men personified the end of the war. Within the next few days, their actions would be felt around the world and would effectively define the 20th century for better and for worse. Six hours before Henry Gunther's death, this delegation had completed its work, as that famous scene on the train carriage in Compiègne, some 40 kilometres north of Paris, took place. Between 5.12am and 5.20am, the German delegation signed on the dotted line, and by so doing... They agreed to end the war. The armistice, it was understood, was a temporary measure and would be cemented through international law's many processes with a conference of nations due to take place in the near future. Even at this early stage, the terms of the armistice were suitably harsh. Negotiation with the Allied delegation was out of the question, though, and since the Germans' arrival at Compiègne, it had been intimated that any failure to sign would lead to the collapse of Germany as they knew it. As if proving the point, on the 10th of November, the delegation were shown a newspaper article which reported on the abdication of Kaiser Wilhelm II and the proclamation of a German republic with democratic processes. All these Germans knew seemed to be falling before their eyes, and this was only the preliminary stage of the negotiations. The peace process, which had been initiated in early October 1918, indicated that a bumpy ride was in store for the Germans and this was confirmed by the reception given to the delegation on Ferdinand Foch's railway carriage. Foch himself appeared only twice during the process, first to see what the Germans wanted, and second, in the early hours of the 11th of November, to see the signatures of the Germans on the armistice document for himself. The armistice contained a total of 35 terms, of which the most important included... An immediate cessation of hostilities, the occupation of the Rhineland by the Allies, the evacuation of the Low Countries and of French territory which was still clung to, the identification of minefields on land and sea, the renunciation of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk which had ended the war with Russia in the previous March, and the surrender of all submarines and ships. It is an interesting but also tragic fact of the era that the armistice which was signed by 5.20am did not come into effect until 11am that same day. This interim period bore witness to some incredibly last minute, literally, incidents as the Allies worked to maintain pressure upon the Germans up until the final moment. These tactics resulted in a groundswell of activity in some regions as local commanders attempted to seize the best positions once the informed Germans withdrew. In one sector, enormous American guns continued to fire at the German positions right up until 10.57 a.m., safe in the knowledge that their payload would still arrive within the deadline, but still far behind enemy lines. In the league of unfortunate soldiers to join the late Henry Gunther was also the Frenchman, Augustin Trebuchon, the Brit, George Edwin Ellison, and the Canadian, George Lawrence Price who were all killed in action in the hour and a half before the armistice came into effect. These individuals were not alone though, an incredible 10,944 casualties were suffered by both sides on a single day, that day being the 11th of November, with 2,738 of these confirmed killed. The First World War, the Great War, thus ended in the same way as it had begun with scenes of tragic waste on both sides, as the politicians and generals played God with their men's lives. Indeed, the Allies need not have worried about any German military resurgence. Contrary to what the vile legends perpetrated by the likes of Ludendorff and Hindenburg would claim, the German army had been defeated. While those military leaders made much noise about the waking up of the fatherland, the stabilisation of the front and the importance of standing up to tank panic, Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria clarified the true state of affairs in the country in late October with the following stark declaration. Our troops are exhausted. In general, the infantry of a division can only be treated as equivalent to one or two battalions and in certain cases as only equivalent to two or three companies. In certain armies, 50% of the guns are without horses. The morale of the troops has suffered seriously, and their power of resistance diminishes daily. They surrender in hordes whenever the enemy attacks, and thousands of plundered infest the districts around the bases. We have no more prepared lines, and no more can be dug. There is a shortage of fuel for the lorries, and when the Austrians desert us, and we get no more petrol from Romania, two months... ...will put a stop to our aviation. Several points can be gleaned from this desperate rant, not least of which was the anticipation of Austria-Hungary's imminent surrender, which took place on the 3rd of November, and which ended the Italian front of the war as well. More surprising perhaps was the Romanian government's decision to detect which way the wind was blowing, and declare war on Germany on the 10th of November an act which the Romanians would attempt to make much credit out of during the later peace negotiations. The month of October can be seen as a struggle within Germany between the civil government's desire to make peace and the high command's refusal to accept reality. In an about-face which has always puzzled historians, Ludendorff and Hindenburg had insisted on making contact with the Americans through intermediaries in early October only to condemn the very notion of a negotiated peace, a few weeks later. This, some historians believe, was a result of their realisation that the terms were far harsher than had been expected, to absolve themselves of responsibility for what followed, as the civilian government did its best, and to handily craft the the stabbed-in-the-back myth which became infamous, the duo argued for a fight to the end which they knew full well was impossible. On the 23rd of October, in response to the probes from Germany's representatives, A note was received from the US President. Woodrow Wilson claimed that the Allies would agree to an armistice, but added a statement which profoundly affected the future of Germany when he said, The nations of the Allies do not and cannot trust the word of those who have hitherto been the masters of German policy. The government of the United States cannot deal with any but veritable representatives of the German people who had been assured of a genuine constitutional standing as the real rulers of Germany. If it must deal with the military masters and the monarchical autocrats of Germany now, it must demand not peace negotiations, but surrender. We can glean much from statements like these. The first is that Woodrow Wilson's remarks here persuaded those in the German government that a democratic revolution of sorts would have to take place in their country and the Kaiser would have to abdicate before the Allies would consider dealing with Germany on reasonable terms. In short, this meant that if a regime change was not facilitated, Germany would be invaded, humiliated and destroyed. The pursuit of the lesser of two evils led German officials to stand up to the duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff and to advocate for the unthinkable, so long as they had the bargaining power left to do so. Second, we are drawn to the suggestion in this extract that Woodrow Wilson expected the Germans would be able to negotiate a peace if they engineered a regime change. Once this revolution took place, the Kaiser abdicated and a republic was proclaimed, the German civilians left behind to lead the country into these anticipated negotiations were to discover to their immense resentment, anger, and bitterness, that Germany would not be allowed to negotiate anything. Instead, she would be dictated to, first in the armistice negotiations, and then during the Paris Peace Conference. What was more, German delegates would not even be invited to the Paris Peace Conference until the final stages of the process, when the terms for Germany's future had already been determined. German delegates would have several issues with the way their country's future was being decided during the Paris Peace Conference, but one pressing one was that they had never been consulted or invited to take part until it was too late. This, they insisted, was in direct contravention of what had been suggested and agreed to in spirit. In spirit, perhaps, but not in law or in principle. If Woodrow Wilson harboured intentions to treat Germany fairly and to invite her to the anticipated peace conference, then he was in the minority. In addition, Woodrow Wilson soon abandoned this idea once the extent of French resistance to it became clear. To the French, Germany was not a party to be consulted or negotiated with. They were the defeated party, and just like France had been forced to agree to the unthinkable in 1871, now Germany would be made to swallow its pride and sign on the dotted line. We will return to this issue in the future of Franco-German hostility, but it should be borne in mind that, Even if it did not determine the German behaviour, the premise that Germany would be fully consulted and would have a chance to negotiate with its former enemies was a beacon of hope which the new representatives of the New German Republic clung to desperately, particularly once everything appeared to be collapsing at home. The German Revolution was rooted in the embers of the dying war, but it did provide a pressing impetus for the New Republic to end the war before matters became desperate. Bolshevism from the East loomed like a dark cloud over Germany by the time October gave way to November in 1918, largely due to the chronic shortages in food which denuded the citizens of their health, morale and patience along with the war effort. The British blockade of the country had taken a horrific toll on the country's population, and the act remains somewhat controversial to this day due to its effects on the civilian above all. When the government attempted to order its navy to confront the British in one titanic and hopefully conclusive naval battle, the sailors responded by mutinying on a grand scale on the 3rd of November. The following day, the Allied Supreme War Council at Paris furnished Woodrow Wilson with the authority to negotiate with the German and Austrian parties using his famed 14 points as the basis for these negotiations. On the 5th of November 1918, came what appeared in the first place to be an unexpected diplomatic coup for Germany, that being the approval from the other Allies to deal with Germany through the guise of Wilson's 14 points, or as they communicated it, the Allied governments have given careful consideration to the correspondence which has passed between the President of the United States and the German government. Subject to the qualifications which follow, they declare their willingness to make peace with the government of Germany on the terms of peace laid down in the President's address to Congress of January 1918, and the principles of settlement enunciated in his subsequent addresses. They must point out, however, that Clause 2, relating to what is usually described as the freedom of the seas, is open to various interpretations, some of which they could not accept. They must therefore reserve to themselves complete freedom on this subject, when they entered the peace conference. Furthermore, in the conditions of peace laid down in his address to Congress of January 8th, 1918, the American president declared that invaded territories must be restored as well as evacuated and freed. The Allies feel that no doubt ought to be allowed to exist as to what this provision implies. By it, they understand that compensation will be made by Germany for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea, and from the air. This, added to Wilson's earlier declarations, created an impression in Berlin which was later to prove bitterly and catastrophically false. There was not much time to consider the sincerity of the offers, though, as Germany had begun to crumble from the inside out, with a further revolution taking place in Munich on the 7th of November. The following day, as we saw, The German delegation met with Ferdinand Foch's assembled delegates. Foch, having been given responsibility for directing the war in its final stage, had also been given responsibility for ending it here. Over the 8th to 11th of November, Foch's was the sole opinion that mattered, and he was a tough taskmaster. Alarmed though they were at the intractability of the Allied demands, the countless pressures and rumours from home worked wonders to persuade the Germans to sign. As they stepped out of Foch's carriage at Compiègne, few could have anticipated that it was not the last time French and German representatives would sit across from each other in this carriage and hammer out a piece. Next time it happened, 22 years later, the roles would be reversed. It was nonetheless on this day in history 100 years ago that the armistice was signed. Six hours later, The Western Front was quiet at long last, and the living nightmare which had engulfed Europe was over. It was said, never to return again. For the next eight months, the world would be consumed with another mission, that of making this armistice official through a peace conference. It was to be a peace conference like no other, as more nations than ever before flocked to Paris, the new capital of world diplomacy, for a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Outside the confines of this city, a new world was being created, the old world was crumbling to pieces, and people of all ages and races were paying the price. For the next eight months, therefore, we will be tracking these events and processes until we reach the point on the 28th of June 2019 that our ancestors reached before us, when the Great War was terminated, and peace appeared to have crowned a brand new era of human history. The reality was less optimistic and, in the end, far more tragic. But it is our task to unwrap all that happened in this supremely important and misunderstood era of history. If you're ready then, make sure you check the feed as I introduce this very ambitious project to you, history friend, and explain what is to come over the next eventful months.